following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continuing to study the Gospel of John. Last week we dealt with the first part of John chapter 3. Today we pick up at verse 9 of John 3, and I'm going to go through verse 16. Of course, you recognize that as one of the most well known parts of Scripture. I will mention that I'm really not dealing too much with verses 11 through 13 in the midst of this passage, not because they're of no importance, but They will be echoed in material at the end of chapter 3, and I'll probably look back at them when I come there. But we want to continue with this dialogue Jesus was having with the man called Nicodemus, who came at night. We don't know whether that was because of embarrassment that he might not be seen with Jesus. He seemed to be respectful towards the Lord. Maybe he was just seeking a good, quiet time to talk. And yet he quickly showed that he didn't understand the things that Jesus was instructing him in or presenting to him. And that was especially the idea of being born anew, born from above by the Spirit of God. He expressed great puzzlement. Let's pick it up at verse 9 of John 3. Follow as I read. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. It's hard for me to imagine any child in an American evangelical Sunday school attending a Sunday school for, say, a year or two consecutively and not coming away from that exposure time with the verse of John 3.16 lodged in their memory banks. I dare say many, many of you here can say it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but has or have everlasting life. 
Somebody once took this familiar verse and broke it down into six phrases and inserted between each phrase a, uh, a conclusion that I like the way they did this. Listen, God, the greatest lover, so loved the world, the greatest company, that he gave his one and only son the greatest gift, that whoever believes in him the greatest opportunity shall not perish the greatest reprieve, but have eternal life, the greatest sure possession. A hundred years ago, a theologian in America named Warfield, B.B. Warfield, wrote this about the subject before us today. Warfield said, if you search the whole universe through and through, in all its recesses and through all of man's historical development, you will find no marvel so great, no mystery so unfathomable as this one, that the great and good God whose perfect righteousness flares in indignation at the very thought of our rebellion and iniquity, yet loves this sinful world. And yes, he loves it so well that he has given his son to die for it. And today we do consider the path leading up to and including this extremely well-known verse of the New Testament, but I'm not treating John 3.16 all by itself. I want you to see how it fits into this discussion and what has gone before. Keeping in mind, if you can, the discussion last week about the need of a new birth and how Nicodemus was confused despite being a Bible expert. He couldn't quite figure out what was going on when Jesus had said, you must be born new again from above. Jesus is going to add here another must to being born anew. The must of his substitutionary death as that which would clearly open the door to eternal life for those who believe. He makes it very clear that if a human soul is ever going to rise to be received in eternal heaven, it will be a supernatural event. Because God will have opened the mind with a new birth to see these spiritual things. And then the individual with mind opened by the Holy Spirit will express faith in the particular historic event of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without that supernatural awakening or birth that we talked about last time, it can't happen. That must happen. But faith then must happen as well as we look to what God has done in the cross of Jesus. So I'm asking you to look first of all today at verses 14 and 15 primarily as leading us into this famous verse of 16. Verses 14 and 15 present an Old Testament symbol or sometimes we call it a type, T-Y-P-E, of the death of Jesus, an event something in the Bible previously that prophesies and represents the great events of the life and death of Christ. Now remember, Nicodemus has shown that despite a great education, a high birth, a powerful position, uh, being respected at the upper strata of his society, 
he was rather dull-minded about real spiritual truth. And in reply to the idea that a man might have to start all over again to be born spiritually again, remember, he said, how? How can these things be? I don't think he was just saying, give me the steps. He was being incredulous. He was saying, I can't imagine this. I can't believe that this has to happen, Jesus. I don't understand what you're talking about. And so he gets challenged by Jesus on his own ground. He's an Old Testament scholar. And Jesus says, well, you're a scholar. I thought we could talk, you know, Bible knowledge to Bible knowledge, and and you would know these things. Surely, Nicodemus, if you're a Bible expert, you can recall examples from the Old Testament word of God where people had to have a whole new beginning by some supernatural work of God. The valley of dry bones of Ezekiel coming to life. Why didn't Nicodemus think of that, for instance? Or the prophet who talked about receiving a heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone. These are known things where new birth was being illustrated. Nicodemus, don't you know those things? So now Jesus segues into verses 14 and 15, raising for him an incident from the book of Numbers, chapter 21. You could find it if you want to look there while I'm mentioning it in Numbers 21, 4. It's the time of the exodus for Israel, journeying under Moses. They've certainly been in the wilderness for quite a while. God had provided, God had worked miracles. And the particular thing now that, you know, Israel's favorite game was, if there wasn't anything else going on that day, let's find something to complain about. Let's complain about Moses. You know, we complain about our president, about our taxes, about whatever. They said, let's complain about Moses and maybe about God too. What are we doing out here in the desert? We're not getting anywhere. And isn't it awful? We have to eat this terrible manna every day. Miracle food miraculously provided, which was nourishing, sweet to taste, completely satisfying to them. Manna, we get it every day. It's awful. And they just were griping about the Lord and about Moses in every possible way. Something happened there in that land of Edom. I was in the nearby area where this took place. If you know anything about the land of Petra, Petra, as a place, uh, the Edomites, you may know that this is a pretty deserted area. And uh, they were out there, and the Lord allowed many poisonous serpents from that area to, to be found and come among them and bite the people, and people died. You know, they were biting against the Lord and biting against Moses, and they got bit themselves by poison that killed some of them, and others were dying. What should we do? Well, now guess what? Moses, Moses, do something. Same guy they were complaining about. The Lord intervened with Moses in a few words to tell him to do something. Make a serpent. It's a strange thing as you read this. I've always thought of this as a very odd instruction, and it's only understood, I think, if you see it in light of the New Testament. He said, Moses, take a pole, Go to a prominent place, make a brass snake, and mount it on the pole, and hold it up so the people can see it. A few of you know that 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 symbol has come down to us today as the caduceus, the symbol of the medical profession, the symbol of healing. Hold it up, and those who believe my word and will look to me in faith will look upon that 
and they'll live. And indeed, that happened. It seems like a bizarre thing. Why would God do a thing like that, we wonder? Well, it makes sense when you begin to see the Old Testament as a series of trail markers that lead and point to Christ. This is a type, we call it, of Christ, a symbol of what Christ would do. Please, that pole and that metal snake were nothing. And as a matter of fact, the Lord had already commanded, don't worship graven images. They're nothing. They're, they're useless. They're mute. They have no power. That snake had no magical powers because God had said to make it. It wasn't like, oh, touch the snake and you're alive. No, it wasn't the snake at all. It was doing what God commanded them to do to trust him and look to him that made the difference and brought healing. The look of faith. And so Jesus mentions that here and says, well, Nicodemus, I wonder if you knew what that was, what was going on there. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Isn't it a little strange to you probably that Jesus likened that rather odd occurrence to himself on his cross? He certainly was no serpent. And yet that serpent on a pole was symbolic of the curse of God upon his own people while they were in their sins and while they were in rebellion. And here was Christ coming to a cross, having done battle with Satan, having defeated Satan, who actually, by the way, is called an old serpent. You know that. And Galatians 3 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The curse, the wrath of God on his people was on Christ upon his cross. And that embodiment of Christ embodied the curse. Yes, Jesus isn't himself the problem, but he was taking on himself the problem. As he was lifted up on a Roman pole of torture and the poison of sin and the disaster of sin was put upon him, he became sin, Paul teaches, for us, under the curse of God, as if he was the greatest sinner of all, when, of course, he was no sinner at all, but he did it for us. And so by mention of this very odd Old Testament prophetic incidence, the death of Christ is first introduced here into the Gospel of John for the first time. We've heard a lot about Christ in the few chapters we've studied, tremendous things about him, especially in chapter 1. But now the idea that this son of God came to die has been introduced and that people will look to him in faith as they did in that day of Moses. Well, secondly, then, after hearing of this Old Testament symbol of his death, I would put before you the first half of John 3.16. I'm going to deal with it in, in two parts, just sort of crawl through the verse here a bit. And the first part of John 3.16 tells us this, that Jesus' death is the cornerstone for God's love, the foundation for the love of God. Now, I'm looking at that short phrase. Let's just stop at it for a minute. The phrase, God so loved. You know, the Bible doesn't teach you about the love of God as an abstraction. That is, whenever he does, we are taught about the love of God in Scripture It's particularized. It's made concrete. I would accuse my old friends from my youth, the Beatles, 
of making God's love an abstraction. All you need is love, everybody. Love, love, love. What does that mean? We're never told. Love, as the Beatles sang about it, was sort of vapid and vaporous, and you never quite could pin it down at all. God's love is a concrete, particular love. You can just about count on this. When the New Testament tells you about God being love or having love, you can be pretty sure something about Christ or the cross is about to be mentioned. It's almost always true. Great example would be in 1 John, the letter of 1 John, chapter 4, verse 8, which makes this statement, God is love. Now, if John just said that, he'd be in the Beatles category. What's that? You haven't helped me understand it. Well, he goes right on. 1 John 4.10, another sentence or so, puts steel beams and concrete around that statement of God is love by saying, this is love that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now it's very particular. What Christ did for us is the expression of the love of God. We could go another place like Ephesians 2.4 where we read God who is rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us. Okay, well how are you going to define that? Even when we were dead in sins, he made us alive together with Christ. You see, particularized love, Christ in the middle of it. You know, it's always dangerous if somebody starts to talk about something that God cannot or could not or would not do. You've got to be very careful about limiting God. But it is correct to say that God cannot love our sins. I could spin out many, many verses to you and say, here are many passages in the Old Testament that talk about God's wrath and hatred of sin and rebellion. He hates it. He abhors it. He cannot abide it. Our sin to God is like a cesspool of raw sewage that he can't tolerate until it's taken away. Then he can tolerate us when that cesspool has been dealt with, you see. Otherwise, his holiness must regard sin with wrath. And the wrath of God is real. Love of God doesn't make wrath just disappear. But you see, when Christ and the cross enter the picture, even centuries before Good Friday, when Jesus actually died at a particular date in the first century, the Father knew that his Son would do this. He knew for whom he would do it. And he knew what the effects of it will be in his eternal plan. Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In a sense, while it was a real event in a moment of time, it was also a timeless event. Because the Father, as he planned our history, as he knew us before we were born, knew what the payment of the Son upon the cross would do to cover our sins. And he can love us with our sins covered. He covered them. Through Christ, he made it possible for us to be loved. So the love of God does have the work of Christ as its cornerstone. The Father seeing this in advance, planning, knowing, electing from all time. Yes, all the words are there. Foreknew, predestined. I'm not going into those words today. But in God's eternal plan, he could love us before we existed because He knew what Christ would do for us 
and allow us to be loved with our sins covered. We're going to go on, Lord willing, in this text just the week to follow here, next or two weeks, I guess it'll be, with our missions conference, and, and we'll see people who remain condemned by God. They're not redeemed by the love of God because Christ's atonement never covers for them as they continue to reject him in their darkened hearts. The love of God for his people in history is not a sentimental thing. It is not based on feeling. You know, we use so much the word, oh, I, I think I stopped loving him. Hmm, what does that mean? Well, I don't anymore have that emotion that makes me tingle towards that person. You don't ever have to worry about God saying that about you. Because his love for you is not based on emotion in the first place. It's based on his steadfast determination that what he does in Christ covers sin, allows you to be his person, man or woman, in his beloved family. Christ, the cornerstone, covers you and opens the way for that love of God to do its wonderful work. Don't miss this, too, in the first part. Of the, I'm still on my second point here, but in the, in the first portion of uh, John 3.16, another phrase besides God so loved is the two-word phrase, the world. People get really mixed up on that, thinking it means some kind of mathematical tally of the people on the earth. Some people will come to us and say, well, then doesn't that teach a kind of universal salvation if God loves mathematically every single person the same in the whole world and every single person must reach the same spiritual destination, right? We call that universalism. The idea that, you know, everybody, doesn't matter what religion you adopt on earth, what your thoughts are about Christ, everybody's going to end up the same because God loves everybody exactly the same. Isn't that what the world means here? No. Once again, as a matter of fact, you look in just a couple of verses and you're going to see about people who are condemned as part of the world. The primary meaning of the word world in John 3.16 could have been stated to Nicodemus, God so loved all kinds of people. The phrase world indicates the breadth and the variety of the people who receive the love of God. In other words, Nicodemus, you come as the elite of Israel and your mind is very sure that God loves your Israelite people because he made his covenant with them and with Abraham years ago. Although, by the way, he did say, all nations will be blessed through you. You just forgot that part. What God was saying to Nicodemus was, God loves non-Jewish people as well as Jewish people. He loves Gentiles. He loves Romans. He loves Greeks. He loves Africans. He loves Burmese people, Nepali people. He loves all kinds of people. And this was a radical notion for Nicodemus to swallow, that God's love was that extensive. It was radical news. Well, thirdly then, as we continue or conclude here with John 3.16 today, the second part of the verse I think, brings across a further point. And I state it this way, that the believer's eternal life is secured by Christ's historic death. We read here, whosoever believes in him. Whoever. 
Incredibly, there are some people who will come to us in our Reformed viewpoint and say, Aha! I've got you, you nasty Calvinist! Did you see that whoever there? That means destruction to your idea of divine election. Well, I don't know, first of all, how one part of God's word can contradict another part of God's word. It just isn't so. There are things that are mysteriously joined and seem contradictory to our limited minds. But whosoever believes in him makes no dent whatsoever in the doctrine of divine election. Election is absolutely taught in the scripture. And so is whosoever believes. How can they go together? Just think for a minute what, what's coming if you want to look ahead in John 6. This same book we're going to have Jesus say in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Oh, to be among that company of those that Christ saves, you've got to be given to him by the Father. That's interesting. John six forty four. right after that he says, no one can come to me has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That sounds an awful lot like God having something to do with this, as well as whosoever believes. What it says to me, that if I can try to reduce it to simple simple things, is God certainly initiates the process. God brings the new birth. We've already been hearing that here in, in John 3. How do we get born from above? God does that. His spirit does that mysteriously. We don't see him operating. We don't, you know, call up a mail order service and say, deliver me a new birth. God brings new birth. God initiates. God knows us from all eternity. And when he has done that, and when our spirit comes alive, then we must express it by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The whoever part, whosoever simply says every single voice that expresses this faith is going to be heard. It doesn't say it was your idea as opposed to God. Whosoever describes a wonderfully simple and yet profound miracle of saving faith arising from the heart and the mind and the lips of God's people in whom his spirit is at work throughout history, throughout every nation, with every color of skin and every language that you could imagine. Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning in heaven now, is the ground of being saved. No matter who calls on the Lord's name. Justifying faith is a matter of believing God, looking to Christ, clinging to the Savior, the way a drowning man. You know, we often use this illustration, and some people tell me it's flawed. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep using it. Here's the drowning man. He's floundered for hours. He's completely exhausted. He's going down. The bubbles are arising to the surface. He's going to be seen no more. And someone finally throws him a life preserver and lands it six inches from his hand, which grasps it. That's faith. Grasping the life preserver that God has thrown to you in your drowning condition. Don't tell me whosoever believes deserves credit for grasping that which would save his life, which he had no part in sending to himself, but God sent it to him in the redemption of Christ. And what is it that happens then as a result of whosoever believes? The last thing in verse 16 I mentioned this morning, of course, is this, that that person should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
There's about six sermons right there on not perishing and six more on everlasting life. I don't think I have time. Make no mistake about it, though, folks. People who are outside of Christ will perish. If we're being told that by believing in him you will not perish, that certainly implies that someone will perish who is outside of faith in him. What is perishing? Well, that's real interesting. The commentators point out that the word perishing isn't really defined here. We're not really told what it means. We're sort of left, at least in this passage, to form our own ideas. Well, you can go to Jesus talking about hell and eternity without knowledge of him in in Matthew and other books, and boy, the picture he paints is pretty terrible, very awful, horrendous to imagine. Here we're just left to imagine perish means a word full of woe. It means an eternity without God. Perishing means no love of friends, no fellowship, no laughter, no joy, no hope of something being better tomorrow. To perish is to exist without meaning or any visible purpose being in sight for you today, tomorrow, or the next day. You've all been enjoying this winter, haven't you? Hasn't it been wonderful? I said to my wife, you know, we live through winters like this all the time in western New York, and I just appreciate even more why I'm glad I don't live there anymore. What if winter was like perishing? What if it snowed 16 inches every day and the sun never shined? And soon you could never leave your house and never get food and you'd die. You know, you think of perishing in terms of flames. It works just as well by snow. Didn't C.S. Lewis portray it in Narnia that winter was the realm and the reign of godlessness. Christian believer, let me tell you, perishing is not in your future. Eternal life is in your future. As a believer in Christ, you can know that the moment you die, judgment has already happened for you. It's already behind you. You'll pass, you know, I don't know if they have some kind of super category. I haven't flown in a few years now, and I'm actually not looking forward to doing it that much because I just watch and I despise what's going on in the security processes. But I, I suppose there's some kind of an ultra-VIP, maybe the head of the CIA at least gets in this category, where you can have the ultra-pass through airport security. You just waltz on through, you know, don't have to check with you at all. That's the believer in the judgment of God. You aren't going to be screened. You aren't going to take your shoes off or empty your pockets. Because your judgment was visited on Christ. And you have a pass called the righteousness of Christ. You know, there's so much I would love to say about what eternal life holds, but I'm just going to take this snippet. The one thing it holds is a sure sight of the face of Christ. I love a man, I stood at his grave in St. Andrews, Scotland years ago rickety old stone about ready to fall down. It's all propped up. 
with the name of the Scottish Puritan Samuel Rutherford carved in it. Samuel Rutherford wrote in a style that doesn't really go over, I suppose, in the 21st century, but he was imagining the idea that he was trying to get a sight of Christ, a fuller sight that he could have in this world. He imagined Christ living in a grand palace, and somehow he had gotten to the door and there was a keyhole, and he could peer in at the keyhole and hope that he could see Christ. That's what was in his mind when he wrote these words. I think I see more of Christ in that keyhole glimpse than I have seen of him before. Oh, and yet, he said, it is but little of what may be seen and will be seen. Oh, what a price would I give, Rutherford said, to behold him fully. Angels cannot weigh his worth, his sweetness, his surpassing beauty. If 10,000 angels were to convene together to be amazed over his beauty and his perfections and debate and consider these things, they would have to begin the very next day wondering at him all over again. How would you exhaust the perfections of seeing Christ face to face? Brothers and sisters, we are going to. We're going to see our Savior What else do you need to know about eternal life? Let me tell you in conclusion today that we humans became lost in the first place, says Genesis 3, when our first father and our first mother took a wrong look at something God had forbidden them to have. The way to turn that wrong look around, you see, is the right look, the look of faith at Jesus Christ, at his cross, at his resurrection. The look that steadfastly gazes and says, here, here is my life. Here is my hope. Here is my passport. Here is my forgiveness. Here is my redemption. And so today I close by addressing the puzzled theologian that Jesus spoke to in John 3. Dear Mr. Nicodemus, You asked, how can these things happen? They happen because the Son of God and Son of Man was once hoisted up on a Roman torture pole in the sight of all peoples. And God declared that by his death on our behalf, we who are all undeserving could look and claim a relation to God that is called nothing less than then capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. Life for a look at Christ. If you would trust him, Nicodemus, you would know how it all happens. Let's pray together. God, our Father, the simplicity and the power of the gospel is wonderful. Thank you that you made John 3.16 understandable to children. And yet I see that here, as Christ brought this truth forth, is a depth that a baffled theologian couldn't penetrate without the new birth, without newborn eyes of faith. I pray, Father, that your electing love, Your regenerating power may be working in some life today. Maybe someone is just beginning to finally wake up and see what it means to look to Christ and trust him and hold on to him. 
and know what life means. I pray, O God, that you hold us fast as you draw us to him. Thank you for such a Savior as we have in Jesus. Amen.